The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. This show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and today. The year 1972 closed with the two Beatles songwriters, Lennon and McCartney, individually once again in concert. What's coming in 1973 is new music from all four former Beatles and a mega hit album from Paul McCartney and Wings. In the coming year, Wings will take a hit by losing two key members, leaving Paul to search for replacements. This process, as we'll see, will take some time and a lot of rehearsing. But the spots will be filled and McCartney once again will travel outside London to search for a new sound or at least to have a fun working vacation. So in this episode, we'll enter the town where Paul went to have fun with his new band and we'll have a guest join us who spent the weeks with Paul and Wings as they rehearsed and hung out on a farm. The gentleman that will be joining us, his name is Dan Ely. Somewhere to the south of New York City Lies the friendly state of Tennessee I am sure that most every Beatles slash Wings fan has heard the 1974 Paul McCartney and Wings hit Junior's Farm by now. The song was named after a farm rented out by Paul and Linda McCartney in Lebanon, Tennessee. There, the band stayed with Denny Lane, Jimmy McCulloch, Jeff Britton, and Paul and Linda, family and friends. With the current success of the McCartney and Wings album Band on the Run at number one, which was recorded in the wake of two key members of Paul's band Wings leaving the group, lead guitarist Henry McCulloch and drummer Denny Sywell, current Wings singles Jet and Band on the Run are at the top of the U.S. charts. McCartney wanted to fill those open spots. By holding auditions, Paul searched inside the U.K. and out. They finally settled upon a guitarist named Jimmy McCulloch, a 21-year-old guitarist whose resume consisted of lead guitar for the band Thunderclap Newman, which had the song Something in the Air, and the blues rock band Stone the Crows. McCartney also settled on a drummer, Jeff Britton. Jeff was a veteran drummer from bands such as Wild Angels and East of Eden. With McCartney's new Wings lineup, Paul decided to spend several weeks away from London and rehearse the band and place them in an area where they can bond. Paul chose Tennessee. Pulling some contact strings, he settled on a 133-acre farm in Lebanon, Tennessee, in Wilson County. It was owned by Curly Putnam Jr. Curly was a singer-songwriter who's best known for the hit song, The Green Green Grass of Home. So one day, in the summer of 1974, Wings had fun playing cowboy. This is where Super Beatle fan Dan Ely comes in the picture. Dan spent time on the farm as a guest of Paul and Linda. Let's go back to that summer of 1974 
on a farm in Tennessee, and welcome Dan to our show. Take it, chaps. Take me down to the farm, Dan, and welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, pleasure to chat with you. What I'd like to find out first, Dan, for all our listeners, is when did you become a Beatles fan? Was it because of your family? Were they musical? Or were you in a band and you learned about the Beatles? How did you become a fan? Well, it actually started February, I think it was February 9th of 64. Uh, I was nine year old and I was at the movie theater, the, the local Prince's Theater here about one o'clock in the afternoon and before the movie started and the previews would come on the lights were up and i was there with a couple of my cub scout friends Ooh, cub scout and one of them yelled across the uh aisle hey dan are you going to watch the beatles tonight and i I replied well what's the beatles and he said just watch ed sullivan tonight wow Hmm. and so without any further discussion i went home after the movies and watched Ed Sullivan and then everyone's world changed the next day at school. It was all about uh, their accents, their hair, their clothes, the way uh, sure, sure. they played their instruments. Paul with his violin-shaped bass and the world was just completely changed after that. I have a burning question. What rank were you in the Cub Scouts? <laughs> Gosh. Uh, are we talking wee below? It, are we? Uh, were you a tiger? What were you? Tiger wasn't around then, Paul. Be honest with you, I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> I just remember that I was there and with my friend Mike Nichols, and he was the one that first uttered the word "the Beatles." Okay, huh. Mike Nichols, noted wee below and Beatle freak, Mike. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did the uh, Beatles influence you later to form a band or play a musical instrument? Well, what happened is uh, my dad played guitar. Oh, professionally or? As a hobby, but he had played some through the years with uh, semi-professionally, I guess you would say. Uh, okay. I'm here in Tennessee, I mean, I'm not far from uh, where Lester Flat oh, right. oh, yeah. lived. And uh, so I was born in that county. My dad would go by sometimes and sat on the porch with Lester Flat and play. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Flats and Scruggs. Wow. My first concert two blocks from my house was Flat and Scruggs when I was about five years old. Wow. So so I had the influence of my dad uh, very early on. Uh, I still have his uh, 1952 Gibson acoustic guitar. Wow. And uh, so that was the first thing I wanted to learn how to play because he played. But once mm-hmm. the Beatles hit, then it was all about playing guitar, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. getting in a band. Well, everyone showed up at school in the fifth and sixth grade with their guitars, and we'd sit around in the cafeteria and play guitars. And uh, right. it was all about music for me after that. Now, being in Nashville, was there a specific like Elvis contingent that kind of separated themselves from the Beatle folk, or was everybody kind of mixing and matching? Well, uh, in my circles, I, which I'm about... Uh, I'm in a small town of about 30,000, 80 miles east of Nashville. It was all about the Beatles at the time. I mean, we, we liked Elvis, but the rage was the Beatles. Okay. You went into a band then, eventually, and you played bass or electric guitar at that point? I was about 12 or 13 when I was approached in junior high by some guy changing classes in the hallway, said, uh, <laughs> hey, you, you play guitar, don't you? And I said, uh, yes. And he said, well, we need a bass player. Uh-huh. And I said, well, I don't play bass. Yeah. He said, you could. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't have a bass. <laughs> he said, well, take two strings off your guitar. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know how to 
how to play bass. He said, we'll teach you. So they totally, to everything I responded negatively to, yeah. they came back with a positive. And uh, I remember going home and thinking, I don't want to play bass. I want to play guitar. <laughs> then I thought, wait a minute. Paul McCartney plays bass. Yeah. yeah. And that's where I got started at 12, playing at the skating rink with my band. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, your story is probably pretty common amongst bass players. You're like, I'm a guitarist. Well, we need you to play bass. Uh, that's right. Uh, <laughs> I guess. And then, oh, well, Paul McCartney's a bassist. I guess that's pretty cool. So, like, thank goodness for Paul McCartney and, like, Jack Bruce for making that well, you, cool. You, you remember know? <laughs> even, even Paul had a dilemma about playing bass at the time. That's right. That's right. And yeah. uh, he said he didn't want to play bass because the bass player was the fat guy in the back. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Just don't tell that to Bill Black. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's very cool. So what kind of music you were pl- I'm assuming you were playing Beatle music in the band and now what we're talking later 60s early 70s what are we talking here time frame wise? Uh, we're talking this time frame here. We're about 67, so we're doing the Monkeys, okay. Tommy James, the Bo Brumbles, whatever's on the radio at the time, you know. Sure. Hmm. Does any country stuff sneak in there? I mean, no, no, we never did play country. Yeah. It was it was all pop or rock. Sure. Did you ever try to contact or go and see the Beatles at all? Well, everybody that I knew in school around 66, 67, 68, they got a reel-to-reel recorder, a little portable mm-hmm. reel-to-reel recorder that had a microphone with it. Mm-hmm. And we would all play with that. And what I started doing, I figured out that if I wanted to call the Beatles at their Apple headquarters... I could call person to person, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't cost me anything as long as they didn't come on the line, <laughs> and I was willing to pay for it if they did come on the line. Boy, you had a whole scheme going. This is great. I still have some tapes of the old British telecom dial tone <laughs> uh, and the ring, <laughs> and uh, the operator would say, uh, overseas call from the United States. For Mr. Paul McCartney. <laughs> and the the security guard says, Paul McCartney hasn't been seen here in three years. <laughs> <laughs> but I used to, yeah. yeah, I used to call him up. I'd think about doing it about midnight, which would be six <laughs> in the morning in London. And uh, we'd get on the phone and call up record it little do we know that security guard is the whole reason the paul is dead theory sprung up Uh, (laughs) (laughs) why paul mccartney has been dead for 50 years that's right (laughs) but actually still i've actually converted a couple of those to cd now so i that's awesome preserve them i would love to hear them actually as the years rolled on and you were able to purchase more equipment and different type of things. You actually bought, from what I read, a uh, Rickenbacker bass. Well, in 74, I had already graduated from high school, Mm -hmm. and I was managing a self-service gas station, and I was playing in a band, and I was booking bands. Wow. Oh, wow. And so um, McCartney, of course, was my hero still. Right. So I bought from Manny's in New York in 74 a... uh, maple glow rickenbacker bass and so i had that i was playing that in the band at the time the only thing i ever got from manny's was a harmonica once (laughs) (laughs) well i i had always worked uh, since i was about 12 years old i'd always worked and so i i saved up and i bought pretty much whatever i wanted equipment wise nice 
And uh, I happened to be at work one day, which is a pretty boring job, you know, if you're the manager of a self-service gas station. Mm-hmm. And um, I picked up the paper one morning, the Nashville mm-hmm. paper, and there was a little blip in an entertainment column by a guy named Red O'Donnell. It was dated May 23rd of 74, and it said, Paul McCartney rumored to visit Music Row. Ooh, nice. So that took off in my mind. I told my friend who I was playing in the band with, who still plays with me in the band today, and he's a huge Beatles fan. Mm -hmm. And I said, if Paul McCartney is coming to Nashville, I'm going to find him and I'm going to meet him. Mm-hmm. So did everybody else that read that. <laughs> <laughs> now, something those other people might not have done. Were you aware at all of Ringo coming to town for the Bukuza Blues? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I knew I knew about that. But, you know, I was a Paul fan. So right, although right. I followed that, I just wasn't inspired <laughs> to make all the efforts that I did to yeah. to meet Paul. Right. Naturally. I mean, <laughs> poor Ringo. <laughs> no one could fault you for that. But uh, that's <laughs> that's interesting, though, uh, because Nashville just is has become this. It's always been like it's been this musical hub for so long. And I just love that, the, that at, you know, at least two of the oh, Beatles yeah. found their way there in their prime still. You know, that's. Uh, well, you know, actually, George came there, too. So so three of them and a, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Don Cusick, who is uh a well-known writer in Nashville and songwriter. Uh, he's wrote 26 books on the music industry. Don Cusick wrote a book called The Beatles and Country Music. Hmm. And uh, if you get that book, you can read about George and Ringo and Paul, all three. And yeah, also, if you get that book, you'll find a couple pages of, of Dan Ely. Nice. Great. Nice. <laughs> uh, we'll definitely look for it. Uh, I know I will. So did you make your way to meet him at a certain spot, or uh, how did you lay pe- about this plan? Well, you got to remember that uh, it was a secret, Paul coming in. Even though that was in the paper, Paul wasn't coming there to be in some public arena. He was coming there mm-hmm. to hide out. And a few days later, I pick up the paper again, and Paul is arriving at the airport. Hmm. And they have pictures of him right. with his kids hmm. walking through the terminal. And so that really launched me. I've got to do something. <laughs> and so I started calling around down Nashville, any place I could, trying to find out anything, get any kind of lead to where he might be. And I thought, well, he'll have a news conference. He'll have to. Right. He'll have a press yeah. conference. So I need to get my press credentials. So I subscribed <laughs> to a magazine called the Melody Maker Magazine, which I always loved no? because yeah. it was, I liked it much better than Rolling Stone. It just, Mm-hmm. It was just more entertaining to me. So I subscribed to it from the UK and I had it at work with me and I opened up the page and there's the, where it does the list, the editorial, the editor and all the management. And it said, Chris Charlesworth, U.S. editor. And I thought, well, that sounds good to me. I'll call him. And uh, he had a New York number. Uh-huh. So I got on the phone and asked for Chris Charlesworth. And he picks up the phone. I said, yes, sir, this is Dan Ely. I'm calling you from Tennessee. I'm a reporter, a stringer in Nashville. Paul McCartney is here, and I'd like to represent your magazine. I'm a fan of your magazine. I subscribe to it, and I'd like to cover Paul McCartney and Wings. Why? He's in Nashville for you. He said, well, do you, uh, do you have any experience? Well, sure, I've written several articles for him. 
does some TV stories and various things, <laughs> sure. But I'm going to need a letter of authorization from you. Yeah. And uh, said, okay. Wow. And uh, a few days later, the letter arrives. I've got my credentials now. I mean, you offered them a valuable service there, whether they, even if you were an amateur, like you were the boots on the ground for that, you know? It's, it's right. funny. That's exactly how John Peel got his start. He came to America around the time, around 64, 65, so he could be an English voice in Texas mm-hmm. to cover the Beatles uh, at that time. And so it's amazing. All the, the, the fake it till you make it stories, they are true. And uh, you were one of them. That's amazing. It's great. <laughs> well, the next thing was uh, I couldn't find out any information about any press conference. So I needed to get some information of where they're staying. You know, again, I was calling around maybe the Hall of Fame, anybody that was a public relations firm down there that was rumored to going to be representing Paul. And I called there. Somebody along the way, three or four bits of information came my way. One was that he's staying in Lebanon, Tennessee, Mm -hmm. which was 60 miles from me. Mm -hmm. The other one was that it was on Franklin Road in Lebanon and that it was a large mansion, a doctor's house with a swimming pool. Hmm. That was the uh, criteria that I was given. Hmm. I was off on a Sunday, so I got my letter, got in my Ford Torino station wagon, yeah. had my uh, base in the car, and I took off to Lebanon. Now, it's Sunday morning. There's not a lot of traffic right. at 10 o'clock in the morning in, in Lebanon mm-hmm. on the rural road. And Franklin Road it was a rural <laughs> back road. So I'm driving down the road looking, and all I see on right and left side of the road was conventional small houses. Sure. There's nothing standing out to me that would go, this has to be the place. Right. So I, I was back and forth a little bit, and I was ready to give up. In fact, I had decided that i got to ask somebody. But the problem was there was nobody to ask. <laughs> mm-hmm. There was nobody on the roads, no cars, nothing. So I go up, and I turn around to head back toward the way I came to leave. Right. And there was one man walking on the road, and I saw that he had a pair of overalls on. And I was thinking, he is not going to know anything (laughs) about what I'm talking about. But I'm not going to mention the Beatles to him. So I eased up to him. I rolled down my passenger's, reached over and rolled down my passenger side window. And I said, sir, I'm I'm looking for a place here on Franklin Road. Uh I said, it's a doctor's house, a mansion with a swimming pool. He said, no, no, there's nothing like that here. Hmm. I said, <laughs> uh, are you sure? Are you sure? A large house, a doctor's house with a pool. He said, no, there is nothing like that here on Franklin Road. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to say something else. I don't want to say the Beatles <laughs> to him. But I said, well, sir, I said, well, sir, uh, one of the Beatles is supposed to be staying there. Uh-huh. And I waited. And he said, you mean those fellers from England? <laughs> and I said, uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. They they are from England. He said, well, they staying up Junior Putman's place. Wow. I said, well, where is that? He said, round up the road there. Round up the road. <laughs> and I said, uh, well, I, I, I didn't see it. What's it look like? He said, well, it sits up on the hill, but they don't have a swimming pool. <laughs> that was what he dwelled on. I love that. So, I love that. That man's name, Mal Evans. I got my letter in my hand. I turned around and I started 
looking. It's quite a ways back up on the road, but when I reached it, all the small conventional houses at the side of the road that you would see in a normal neighborhood uh-huh. suddenly gave way to a large mansion far up on the hill with a entrance out front. And as I passed it, I knew this is the place. This has to be it. And as I just got past the entrance, there was a, a another house, a small house out front. And I see Denny Lane <laughs> and Jimmy McCollop. Oh, wow. <laughs> outside under the shade tree, standing there. <laughs> so I pull into the driveway. Were they smoking a cigarette or they were just standing around? Dr- Denny was drinking a beer. Okay. And standing talking to Jimmy. Jimmy was sitting on the ground. Okay. So, <laughs> you must have recognized Denny, but I would imagine you wouldn't have been able to recognize Jimmy yet. Because he had only just joined the band very recently, or was that also in the paper? Well, no, I no, I knew who he was. Oh, okay, you know, I mean, I might have read it in, in Melody Maker. That's yeah. true. I mean, yep. I kept up with everything connected okay. with him, so I did mm-hmm. know. Yeah, I knew who it was. So I get out and uh, I have my letter in my hand, and I went up and I shook hands with him and I said, "I'm Dan Ely from Melody Maker Magazine." <laughs> Chris Charlesworth sent me. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't really say anything. Wow. I'm expecting to get some kind of welcoming or something, but they didn't really say anything. I remember saying to Jimmy, you know who Chris Charlesworth is, don't you? And he goes, yeah, I know who Chris Charlesworth is. <laughs> and so, so there I was. Well, my friend who was with me, had his, that I played in the band with, had his Gibson Les Paul in the car. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. We played in the band together. So yeah. I said, hey, we got a Les Paul in the car. Do you want to see it? And I said, yeah, yeah, get it out. <laughs> so we get the Les Paul out, and Denny's got it in his hand. And I said, uh, Denny, could you play the opening lick to Band on the Run for me? <laughs> and he goes, man, I don't want to play no elfin guitar. <laughs> And Jimmy goes, well, let me see it, man. I'll show you. <laughs> and Denny hands off the guitar to Jimmy. Jimmy does the opening lick. And so the eye sort of broke then. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Jimmy was the younger guy, so he would have probably been more inclined to play ball, whereas Denny had been around the block for a little while. Yeah. Jimmy was 21 and <laughs> yeah. just a couple of years older than me. Yeah. Just excited to be shaving at that point, really. You know? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but there we were in, sort of. And uh, <laughs> after that, I started going down every day. Oh, okay. Wow. I would go home because I had to work. Would you go by yourself? or? In most occasions, I went by myself. I was very protective, particularly in the beginning, right? to not bring anybody down. Sure, sure. But when I would tell people at home, hey, I see Paul, I'm da- I, see, I see McCartney, they were giving me the, yeah, yeah, right. Well, I don't think so. <laughs> we all see McCartney. Nobody, nobody was believing it, you know. What did your parents say? My parents was following a little bit of it on the news, and I was telling them about it. I mean, you know, your parents are just yeah. Uh, they listened, but they were my parents were into country music, and bluegrass, a different yeah, different type yeah. My mother liked uh, Perry Como and Andy Williams. Mm-hmm. And my dad liked Hank Williams and Johnny Cash. Okay. Mm. 
And so they would just entertain, you know, uh, what I would tell them. And mm. uh, I would just give them a report every day what was going on. And they would yeah. see bits on the news about it. Going back and forth to the farm every day, did you see one of the members of the band, Wings, or did you see anyone else, like a worker bee, or did anyone let you in the gate? No, there was no gate at that time. Oh, wow. What, nice. what there was was the, the columns were there, and they had a chain across it. Oh, okay. There was actually no physical gate in 74, but... The, ba- the, the band was staying in the guest house, as I refer to it up front, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Paul and Linda was, it was staying up at the main house up on the hill. Right, right. I would see Alan Crowder, you know, the road manager, mm-hmm. and Trevor Jones, and uh, I would sit around and wait for an opportunity to say something. I bring my bass, I bring a, my record collection of wings, and I bring a <laughs> box full of wings <laughs> magazines. Yeah, everything, everything I would bring too. <laughs> and I'm sitting at the table with them. They're having breakfast one morning. Jeff Britton, Jimmy, Denny, and Alan Crowder. And mm-hmm. uh, I would wait for an opportunity to say something. And I said, "Hey, Denny, when you were in Nigeria, you had a beard." <laughs> Jimmy looks at me, and he looks at them, and he goes. God, he knows more about us than we do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they all burst out laughing. It sort of broke the ice. Then yeah, I remember right, that right. there was a green wall phone behind them. And it rang one morning. And Alan takes the call. And he says, no, Paul's not here. Paul's at the house. That number is. And he started to proceed what? to give them the number. Wow. Man, you guys played it fast and loose in the 70s. I was trying to uh, recite it in my mind. You know. Sure. 472-382-472. But I couldn't. I was so excited about it that I couldn't remember it. Right. Oh, man. Yeah, you were so close. I couldn't get it together to remember the the number at the house. But uh, on another occasion, I come down. I know the, the statute of limitations on reckless driving has expired now, but I would make it from my <laughs> exit to Lebanon in about 20 minutes, which is about considerably faster than, uh, than it should be. And <laughs> I pull up one day and I had my Rickenbacker bass with me and I got mm-hmm. out and Denny was standing outside. The reason they were outside a lot is because the guest house had no air conditioning. Oh. Wow, mm. Paul and Linda were. Wow. <laughs> wow. And uh, it was very hot. I mean, it was in the upper 90s. And uh, mm-hmm. they would be outside under the shade tree and um, sitting out on the porch. <laughs> and... See, you have to learn how to smile as you cool if you want to be with the folks on the hill, you know. <laughs> I think I, I Paul was in the air conditioning watching them from the window. <laughs> that that could have been a point of contention later down there. I'm not sure. Imagine. But but, uh, but eventually I get out with my Rickenbacker bass, and Denny goes, wow, I love this. And he straps it on. If you look on the Internet, you, know, you can see some of these photos, you know. But Denny's got the mm-hmm. bass on, and I'm standing beside him. My friend snaps the picture. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, uh-huh. Denny looks at me, and he says, Paul would love this. Whoa. Whoa. And I said, uh, well, give it to him. Oof. That is quite the, the give. 
I left it with him. I said, give it to him. So every day I'm continuing to go down. I would see Paul riding up and down the driveway on motorbikes. And uh, I'd see him going swimming in the pond. Had my binoculars with me. You know, I'd check it out. Mm -hmm. Every day when I went, I would take gifts. I would take gifts for the kids. I would take uh, shirts for the band. I took Paul this shirt. I took all the band shirts and stuff for the kids. Yeah. Every day I was loaded up with stuff to uh, as gifts. Mm -hmm. So one day I'm there at the house, at the guest house, and Jimmy, uh, somebody tells me, Denny or Alan says, look, it'll be better if you don't come down tomorrow. Oh, wow. I said, okay, well, uh, what's going on? And they said, well, it'll just be better if you're not here. I said, okay. So the next day, I didn't go, and we had a terrific mm -hmm. electrical storm. And mm -hmm. so the following day, I load back up, and I go down, and I arrive and go in the guest house, and there's a little activity going on. They're bringing mm -hmm. in some champagne, some ice, and I just uh, a little bit out of the ordinary, I noticed. And I walk over to the window, looking down at the covered picnic area near the pond, which was about 400, 500 feet from where I was. Mm -hmm. And I look out the window with my binoculars, and I said, Paul's got my shirt on. He's got my shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably said it a lot of times. I said, he's got my shirt on. He's got my shirt on. And... Uh, so eventually Jimmy comes over to him and he goes, we're having a little get together down at the picnic area. Paul wants us to work the gate, but we don't want to. You could. And I said, well, this, I said, what's work the gate mean? He goes, you know, you go at the gate and you let people in that should be in and you keep everybody else out. And I said, okay. I said, uh, he said, if you'll do this. When we get through, we'll take you down to meet Paul. I said, okay, I'm oh, in. Nice. I'm in. What, who, who's coming? He said, it'll be Jerry Reed, Chad Atkins, oh, and Roy oh, Orbison. <laughs> and I wow. said, so I said, okay. I love that Denny and Jimmy are like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of this story. They're like the the duo, the bumbling duo that are like, yeah, sure, we'll bring you closer. Yeah, give me that guitar. I'll take that. Or... Well, they definitely did not want to be stuck at the gate or the entrance. Yeah, right. <laughs> or probably in a non-air-conditioned house. <laughs> so I make my way down to the entrance. I'm exposed to the sun. It's very hot. And I can look. But to, over my right shoulder, and I can see Chet Atkins' Cadillac was already there, white Cadillac. Oh, beautiful. And hmm. Now, the party, if you want to call it that, I figure out that it's Paul's birthday. So it's oh, June 18th yeah. of 74, hmm. and Paul is wearing my shirt. Which <laughs> oh, is pretty wow. Fun. Wow, sure. He's wearing a black shirt I got for him. You can see it in a lot of pictures. Wow. It's got embroidered birds on it, and I had Paul embroidered on the collar. So he was wearing that shirt when he received the Bill Black bass. That's a momentous occasion. <laughs> well, he was wearing it on his birthday in 74, and he's wearing it backstage at the L.A. Forum in 76 on his birthday. Man. Wow. What was that, his lucky shirt? What what kind of weird story is this? This is amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. He obviously liked it. But it's such well, a distinct shirt that every time I saw it, 
I said, that's the shirt I gave him. It's very unusual, you know. He's known to do that. Uh, he, uh, th- there's, there's a shirt he wore with the quarrymen. I think they were still the quarrymen at that time. Maybe not. Maybe they, were, maybe they were past that age. But there's that. it's a white shirt with a black top on uh-huh. it that he, Lennon, and George all had. And if you notice in the 69, yeah. not, the t- not the Tittenhurst photos, but uh, there's, yeah, maybe it was the Tittenhurst photos. He is just yeah. the most frugal man that ever lived. My goodness. Yeah, he has a sweater that he wore throughout the 80s. It was yeah. the same sweater. I'm up at the entrance, and here comes a black Porsche. And as it slows down to enter, I see that it's Roy Orbison. Oh, jeez. And he has jet black hair that's combed down mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he has leather black leather jacket on and i'm thinking god it is hot how is he standing and he had a black t-shirt on black <laughs> leather pants and i waved him through and then i thought but it's more important to look cool than to be cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and then and, you thought, hey, that's my shirt, too. Where are these guys get my shirts? Hey, I, so I, I'm thinking, I'm visualizing now as I look down there, one of the guys in the band is going to be coming up here, and they're going to get me. It's going to be maybe Jimmy or Denny or maybe might be Alan. They'll walk up here and get me in a little bit. And I'm watching, and all of a sudden, I see somebody leaving the pavilion, walking. Uh-huh. And I keep looking, and it's Paul coming toward me by himself. I had this little Minox-type camera in my pocket, which was a foolish thing because I took it out and I laid it on the fence post and left it because I thought I didn't want to jeopardize. But here he comes by himself. He leaves Roy Orbison. He leaves them all. He comes through the field and he approaches me. And the first thing he says is, you're the guy with the bass. (laughs) Nice. I said, "Uh, yes, that's right. And he said, you know it would be silly for me to keep it. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> and we just walked together back down to the little pavilion. It's got a radio on. It's very low key. Some finger sandwiches. They got the music, a little bit of music playing. And they're all just feeling, having a good time. And Paul says, Dan, I want to introduce you to someone. This is Roy Orbison. Whoa. Wow. Jeez. And wow. I didn't want to smother him, and so I right. sort of I gravitated away from him, went over and talked to the other guys. Paul came over, and I remember saying, you know when the Beatles broke up, the fans broke up too. He was just looking wow. at me, you know. I said, you know, a lot of our friends went with you, and a lot, some of our other friends went with John. Yeah. Our friends broke up with each other when you guys broke up. Huh. I don't know what he thought. He didn't really say, he just sort of nodded on it yeah yeah i talked to him about the fan club how i would like to see more done with the fan club and and he told me well talk to my manager about it he'll be in in a few days which was brian broley was his manager right yeah and so i i moved away from him and go over and talk to some of the other guys and a little bit jimmy mcculloch came over to says dan dan paul's hollering at you (laughs) and i looked (laughs) paul was in the car it was a rental car pulled down he was in the car and linda was in the car and he was getting ready to leave. And he made it a point to get my attention to say goodbye before he pulled out. Oh, nice. So hmm. the last thing I said to him, Paul, Yellow Submarine's on TV tonight. Are you going to watch it? 
<laughs> he said he didn't know. I don't know, he said. But uh, but that was uh, – I was the only outsider there. Wow. So you were responsible for writing a story still about this, right? Well, I never had any intentions of ever writing a story. <laughs> In fact, one day, Denny comes to me, and he says, you know, Paul hates reporters. Whatever you do, <laughs> don't let him know that you're a reporter. <laughs> Hide the melody maker letter. <laughs> and I said, well, uh, I don't have any intentions of doing anything. I just wanted to hang out with you all. Wow. That was the end of that. It was never brought up again. And I never wrote a story. I was really hoping you were giving melody maker dailies of like what gifts you were giving them and how much money they should be compensating you for oh, for geez. the shirts <laughs> and <laughs> for the Rickenbacker. Well, and- <laughs> my, my friendship with the band was worth more than whatever I would have gained from oh, absolutely. doing that with Melody Maker, because they would consider that a betrayal. Oh, for sure, yeah. Right. right. So it just didn't happen. Uh, eventually, uh, Jimmy McCullough handed me one day a one-sided demo. They had these one-sided demo records down there, mm-hmm. 45s, and they were handwritten. Uh, it said EMI on them, uh, number three, Abbey Road, mm-hmm. but they would handwrite the title. And I think they were listening to them for rehearsing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was my impression of it. But it was called Soily. Mm. But it was written and spelled S-O-I-L-I-E. They, they didn't have the Y at that point. Yeah. <laughs> and it didn't come out till 76. And this is 74. Right. Right. That's and crazy. so I, t- I took that back home. I recorded it on my reel-to-reel. And the band, my band, learned it, and we were playing it every night. This is unreal. This is absolutely unreal. I can't believe that. It's amazing. That's great. Do you still have it, Dan? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The the, oh. the funny part of it is that if you think about that song and you know how they played it live, you actually couldn't understand all the lyrics. No, I still he don't. Goes, he goes, Captain <laughs> Satin, Satin, Silly Boy, whatever he said. And we couldn't figure out the <laughs> we couldn't figure out the lyrics, so we just made them up. <laughs> now I always heard it as the cat in the satin trousers said it's oily. Uh, is that real? You're better I, than is, me, I don't know. <laughs> I thought it was the cat in the satin trousers said it's oily. I don't know what is oily, or who that cat is. <laughs> I'm not sure what we said. I'm sure it wasn't that. But we would announce we would announce to our audience, we've been hanging out with Paul McCartney Wings. This is one of their songs. not been released. And it goes like this. Wow. And we would play Soily. Hey, have you ever uh, spoken to the Jimmy McCulloch biographer, uh, Paul Sally, about any of this stuff? Yeah. I provided some of my photos to Paul for his book. Oh, that's wonderful. Paul's a friend of the show. Uh, we, love, yeah. we love Paul. Shout out to Paul Sally, uh, by the way. And uh, yeah. I just... If you hadn't ta- uh, spoken, I was about to say, hey, talk to this guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, Jimmy was always very nice to me. I always called Jimmy my advocate down there mm. because <laughs> mm. one time I was there at the house, and suddenly out of nowhere, they're all standing around. Jimmy suddenly goes, 
Alan, when are you going to take Dan up to meet Paul? <laughs> I thought I was going to pass out. <laughs> well, you guys must have been close, at least close in age, sort of, at least. Two you know, years. Fairly. I was 19, yeah. he was 21. Yeah, so, I mean, there's some camaraderie built in there. I well, I also remember one time talking to him something about Paul, and I had, I had expressed some, that I was, I was frightened about approaching Paul about anything. And he, I remember Jimmy saying, oh, Dan, Paul's not like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> that was the last time you saw Paul McCartney, though, which uh, was when he left and you told him about Yellow Submarine. Is that correct? No, I saw him again there at the farm several times. One wow. day, okay. one day, my friend Billy hadn't met him. The guy I'm playing in the band with today and the one that was mm-hmm. uh, I was playing with the band then. Right. One day I was at his house. I mean, what do you do? One of your best friends is a big Beatles fan. You've played in the band with him all these years. You're going to see McCartney, but you're not going to ever ask your friend to go. And so... <laughs> I guess it depends on the friend, really. I mean, well, I was there one day, and I sort of looked at him, and I was hesitating, and I said, Hey, you want to go meet Paul? <laughs> he goes, Yeah, I'd like to. Yeah, no kidding. And I said, Well, let's go. So we load up in the car. It's brutally hot. We get about halfway there, about 30 miles down the road, in my Ford Torino station wagon. We have a flat tire on the interstate. Oh, jeez. You're out on the pavement, and sweat is pouring off my face, and I'm tightening the last lug nut. <laughs> Billy's about six foot five, and I look up at him, and I said, you just want to go back? He goes, no, we might as well go on. I said, okay. So I threw the lug wrench in the car. We took off down there. Now, when I pull up on this day, I go in the guest house. Mm-hmm. Billy's wandering around outside in the yard. <laughs> oh, Remember that in 74, cameras were either very expensive or they were cheap right. pieces of crap. And mine was a cheap piece of crap. Minox looking yeah. little spy camera. And I had it in my pocket. And you know, i got to also understand that you there was a counter on there for your film. 12, you know, 24. 12 yep, frames yep. or 24. So if you can picture Barney Fife for a moment, if you can picture Barney Fife when he's searching for his one bullet, when when everyone gets Billy suddenly runs inside the house. He goes, come on, Dan, Paul's coming down the driveway. And I said, what? He said, come on, come on, Paul's coming down the driveway. I was trying to find my camera in which pocket, and I was fidgeting. And I go, oh, 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 I don't know if I got enough film or what. So I suddenly opened the back of it popped the cartridge out and threw another one in and billy said you ran right out in front of the car <laughs> he's talking, talking about it later i said no i didn't he goes yes you did he said you ran right out in front of the car so let me get my pictures a minute we were talking about this later and i got to the pictures and there's a picture of paul in the windshield and there's the hood ornament right square in the middle of the frame <laughs> well, so i guess i did but paul stops and he rolls down the window now, this is Billy's impression. Billy says Paul rolled down the window and said, How's it going, Dan? Whoa. <laughs> Billy said, I thought, Wow, Paul McCartney <laughs> knows your name. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. so I took awesome. Billy's picture with Paul, and Billy took mine with Paul. And uh, Paul started to get out, but Linda sort of grabbed his leg, sort of, pulled him back in Uh, mm -hmm. like wherever they were going you know he was going to get out of the car but 
But Billy got to meet him that day, and he's still making payments to me 45 years later. <laughs> <laughs> he's still in the band with me. So, That's amazing. So That's amazing. now, what i got to tell you is that a lot of times in the afternoon, I would stand in the yard, and I would listen to the band rehearse. Wow. Wow. They would be doing Jet, Band on the Run, My Love, Little Woman Love, High, High, High. And they kept playing some riff that I'd never heard before. And they kept going over and over and over this riff. And I was getting pretty bored with it. And <laughs> Now you know how John Lennon felt. <laughs> <laughs> One, two,
Danny, what was that song? You guys kept going over and over. He goes, oh, you'll find out later. Well, it turned out to be Junior's Farm. Oh. Ah. And this was early in June. Yeah. Because they didn't record it to the 7th of July at the sound shop. So I had to be actually one of the first ones outside the band ever to hear the song. Wow, that's amazing. Wow. Eventually, I go get a cassette recorder from a friend of mine, and I bring it down, and I start recording their rehearsals. Wow. Smart. And Very smart. Heather's out. Paul's uh, stepdaughter, Heather, is out riding a horse, with, and there's a German Shepherd with her, Rusty. And uh, I'm out there, and she's getting closer and closer. And on the tape, you can hear the, the trotting of the horse coming and the panting of the German Shepherd. That is and so she comes cool. up to me and she says, uh, Jeez. my mother sent me to find out who you are and if you don't belong here to get rid of you. Wow. <laughs> and, I, and this is on the tape, you know, and I said, well, I'm a friend of Jeffrey, which was, uh, I was referring to Jeff Britton. Right. And uh, she says, well, why don't you go over there by that fence or somewhere? Why don't you go out to lunch for a while and then come back? And I said, well, Paul McCartney's practicing and I want to hear him. Now, what you have to understand here, guys, in the summer of 74, when I'm standing there listening to Paul, Paul has not played in America since August of 66. Mm -hmm. True. So it is not like... He's been at all these concert venues like he has today. Mm-hmm. At this time, I'm listening to some god from some far-off land that I never dreamed I would ever hear in person. Yeah. Right. Because the Beatles, he had not played in America since August of 66. So Now, you didn't say all this to Heather, did you? <laughs> no, I didn't say all that. But I did say... Paul McCartney's practicing, and I want to hear it. Is it possible Linda was trying to shoo you away because they were about to rehearse Wide Prairie? <laughs> I, she was trying to shoo me away, I think, but because she didn't know who it was, and Linda was pretty, right, very right, protective right. of Paul. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was what it was about. But eventually, I mean, no one ever asked me to leave. And uh, after I'd worked the gate, I was pretty much in mm-hmm. and uh, was there uh, on a regular basis. Now, at some point... I start sensing. I mean, they came up to me one day, and they said, uh, I think Alan Crowder came up to me. He said, Dan, do you know a steel guitar player? Paul's looking for a steel guitar player. Hmm. I said, yeah, uh, Pete Drake. Ooh. You guys can get Pete Drake. He says, well, no, we, Paul doesn't want to get Pete Drake because he played on Georgia's right. stuff. <laughs> mm. I'm just a guitar <laughs> Which was a, a, bit, a little bit of insight there, you know, and... Yeah. Then also, they asked me, do you have access or know anyone that has a motorhome? So I th- I'm sensing at this point, they're preparing to leave. So I have my bass down there. I have my box of records, which included a lot of bootlegs. 
And the band told me, whatever you do, whatever you do, do not let Paul see these bootlegs. <laughs> Heard about him with that. So I'm thinking, I, I need to get back down there. I need to get my stuff. So I show up one day, went in, and asked Denny where my bass was and everything. And I got my bass back, and I picked up my albums and my uh, my magazines. Mm. And I came back home, and I, I didn't go back again because I just knew yeah. they were getting ready to go. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I can tell you a little bit now about the bass story, which the bass starts to get crazy here. I bring the bass back to my hometown being a 19 year old kid i mean i wasn't thinking about the significance of it and people often ask me they said why didn't you have paul sign it i said i was standing in the field with it over my neck and i thought i'm gonna ask paul to sign this but i don't want him messing up my base <laughs> i mean you know it was pretty new i remember even flipping it over on the back side thinking i could have him sign it on the back but fortunately, for reasons that I'm going to lead to in this story, mm -hmm. it was a good thing that I never had Paul sign the bass. Mm. Now, I come back home, and I eventually sell the bass to get another one. I sell it to a gospel bass player named Harley Stringer. He was in his 40s, and uh, I sell him the bass. And then I get tortured every weekend from... My friend Billy explained to me, why'd you sell the bass? And I show people the picture <laughs> of me with Denny, and they always say, hey, you still got the bass? <laughs> and I have to say, no, well, no, no. So I, after enduring quite a bit of, of aggravation over this, I decided I'm going to call Mr. Stringer back, and I'm going to ask him if I can buy it back. So I called him, and I said, Mr. Stringer, I sold you the bass. Can I buy it back? I'd like to have it back. He said, Dan, I wouldn't take nothing for that bass. <laughs> he said, Paul McCartney played it. Now, in a small town like Cookville, if someone has an instrument and you want to know about it, you don't always have to go ask them. Mm -hmm. You can ask people around them. So I would keep mm -hmm. a check on it. I would keep a check on the bass. Does Mr. Stringer still have the bass? Yeah, he still got it. He wouldn't take anything for it. So time passes. And I dreamed that I would like to get it back one day. And Mr. Stringer's obituary shows up in the local Whoa. paper in 1995. Oh, no. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what am I thinking? The base. I mean, he did add over my dead body. So you're like, I guess, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I asked around about it. And they said, no, his his family's going to keep it. It was their daddy's base. No. I mean, uh, they're going to keep it. I said, okay. So... I'm still play, played in the band with Billy for 20 years. Still play with him today, enduring the torture. Even though I introduced him to Paul, I still get tortured over selling the bass. Yeah. So I eventually decide one day, I tell Billy, I'm going to call Mr. Stringer's daughter, and I'm going to ask her if I can come by and see it mm. one last time. I left her a message, and she called me. And I said, this is Dan. I sold the bass to your dad. I said, uh, would you mind sometime if I just took a brief moment I could come by and just put it on one time, look at it, feel it, play it. Wouldn't take much of your time. I'd just like to play it one more time. She said, well, Dan, you know, after Daddy died, it went to his sister in Nashville. Oh, jeez. I said, oh, no. And she said, yes. And she died suddenly. Wow. And it went to her daughter. 
and either her daughter pawned it or her boyfriend sold it. Wow. Oh, no. So I'm figuring now I'm lost. I'm never going to see this base again. I tell Bill, it's probably in a pawn shop somewhere around here. It's It could be in Nashville. It could be anywhere. So one day I go over to this repair shop that's about 16 miles from here mm. and where they work on guitars. And they said, hey, Dan, are you interested in a bass? I said, I don't know. What is it? They said, it's a Rickenbacker. I said, uh, oh, what year is it? They said, it's a 1974. I said, oh, what color is it? They said, it's maple. I said, let me see it. They drag it out. And I told Billy before, I said, I never wrote down the serial number to this bass. How will we ever know if we run up on it? He said, let's look at the picture uh-huh. of us in 74 with it. He said, you're lucky because it's got two distinguishing marks on the top that most of them don't have. Here under the pit guard and here above the pit guard in the wood grain is knots. And most of them mm. don't have that. And that is how you're going to identify it if you ever find it. And Billy said, let me take a picture of it. I'll put it on my iPad. If I'm out and about, he's a salesman. He searches for guitars. He goes in pawn shops, music store. So if I ever run up on it, I'll have this picture. Which I thought, well, that's ridiculous because you're never going to run up on it. But go ahead and put it on your iPad. So the bass comes out over there, and I look at it, and I don't see the marks that I want to see. So I decide that I'm going to buy it anyway because it'll be the next best thing. I'll have a 74 Maple that's a lot like the one I had, and I'll be happy with it. So I buy it. I get back to rehearsing with it every weekend. I'm happy. I'm in a happy place with this. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got a similar bass. It plays great. I'm happy. And I sort of forget about, I've accepted the fact that I'm never going to get the original bass back. Mm-hmm. And then, on May 19th of 2017, I'm on my back porch talking with an insurance company on my cell phone. And Billy's calling. And he calls me on a regular basis anyway, so I just send it to voicemail. I go back to the call, and he's calling again which is not unusual. I send it to a voicemail again. (laughs) Then he's calling a third time. (laughs) So I tell the insurance company, let me go. I'll call you back. And I hear my phone go off that Billy's left a message, but I don't listen to the message. I just return the call. And he answers, and I said, why in the world are you blowing up my phone this morning? He said, if you're not interested in this base, I may just buy it myself. I said, oh, well, uh, what is it? He said, you know the pawn shop on Cedar Street? I said, yeah, Chris. He goes, I just walked in there. I said, we buy guitars from there all the time. Yeah, Chris. He said, well, I walked in there, and Chris said, hey, Billy, you think Dan would be interested in buying a bass? I've been meaning to call him. Billy said, probably not. He's got several. What is it? Chris said, it's a Rickenbacker. Billy said, okay. What year? So we looked it up yesterday. And it's a 74. Billy said, okay, uh, what color is it? He said, it's maple, but we sold it yesterday. It's been in here over 10 years. Oh, jeez. They said, they said, what? Billy said, 10 years? He goes, well, it come in. We got a warehouse in the back. It got shoved aside. A bunch of other stuff come in. It got covered up. It got moved. And we forgot about it. And my dad found it yesterday and put a piece of masking tape on it saying Rickenbacker, and he set it out, and I sold it. Billy said, let me run out and get my iPad. So he ran out, he got his iPad, found the picture, and he shoved it up in Chris's face 
Chris said, wow, that's it. Oh, geez. That's the base. <laughs> and Billy, he said, now look, the guy that bought it is not a musician. He buys gold and silver from us, and he'll buy a guitar to flip. Do you want me to call and see if he's still got it? Billy said, yeah. He said, do you think Dan would still be interested in it? Billy said, if it's the one he's been looking for for 42 years, he'll be interested in it. <laughs> so they called the guy. The guy he's, they said, hey, do you still have the Rickenbacker bass you bought yesterday? He said, yeah, I got it. He said, you want to sell it? He goes, that's what I bought it for. They said, well, there's a guy going to call you. He thinks it might have been his original bass. If it is, he'll probably buy it. So they call me. I'm not thoroughly convinced right now that it's mine. I'm going to follow up on it. So I called the guy, and I said, this is Dan. I said, I'm calling about the base. If it is not mine, I'm not interested in it. I already have a 74 Maple Rickenbacker. But mine has a couple of distinguishing marks on it, a knot below the pit guard and a knot above the pit guard. Could you send me a picture? He goes, well, it'd be, it'd be tonight. What? You couldn't get someone to take a picture of it and send it to me? He said, well, I could, but it'd be tonight. I said, uh, all right, well, let me put your number in my phone, and I'll text you. I'll send you some pictures. I'll show you mine, and I appreciate it if you'll get back to me. So I go up, and I start looking through a lot of my records to get my mind off of this. I don't want to sit around and think about that this could be my base all day. <laughs> and in about 20 minutes, my phone goes off, and there's the picture of it, and the guy says, this looks like yours. And there was the marks. Wow. So I ran down the hall to show this picture to my wife, who cares nothing about this <laughs> at all. <laughs> but I got to say, I got to show it to somebody. So I run down to her desk, and I shoved it in her face. And I said, I think I'm going to get my base back after 42 years. There's my base. This is it. And I got just a cold, dead stare. No comment. So I backed up, and I hit forward on my phone, and I sent it to Billy. My phone rings, and Billy goes, there's no doubt about it. It's unbelievable. That's your base. You're going to get your base back. I said, listen, i got to call this guy, and I can't be acting crazy. <laughs> I've got to calm down before I call him. I said, I'll call you back in a minute. So I called the guy. He answered. I said, yeah, well, it looks like that's my base. And I, I'll make you an offer on it. And I made him an offer. And he said, okay, that's fine. And he said, I live outside of Nashville. And I said, well, I'm in Cookville. Can we meet in Lebanon? Yeah. Because I wanted to meet there because of Junior's farm. And he goes, okay. I said, well, bring it. And I'm going to get on the interstate and I'll meet you. So he says, okay. He said, I'll text you along the way and we'll coordinate and we'll meet. So I said, okay. So I called Billy back and I said, where are you? I'm coming to get you. We're going to go at the base. He sort of whispered. He says, no, I, I can't go. I said, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? This is the base. Yes, you're going. He goes, man, I'm at the vet. I've got my big lab here. My wife's with me. He's sick. She can't handle him. I said, well, put him to sleep. <laughs> okay, I understand. <laughs> Never mind. I'm out of here, though. <laughs> so I took off down the interstate. The guy's... You know, texting me, we're coordinating, and we pull up together at a gas station in Lebanon, Tennessee. He's a younger guy. He's got some guy with him. I know what's going on in my mind about this base. 
He doesn't. So I get out of the car. He's got the hatch up on his expedition. And he's fixing to grab the case. And I said, whoa, whoa, no, no, wait. <laughs> and he freezes. looks actually at me like I'm a crazy guy. <laughs> he freezes. And I said, I said, hang on a minute. I, hang on. I said, you have to understand, I've not seen this base in 42 years. He goes, okay. I said, all right, let's get it. So he reaches up for the case, and he pulls it out. He flips the latches down, opens up the case, and there's a blue notebook in there. And he reaches for it. When he reaches for it and opens it up, it has gospel music in it. And it says, Stephen Street Baptist Church, Cookville, Tennessee. Mr. Street. Oh, geez, that's hmm. it. Wow. There was the bass. It also had a strap in there. And Mr. Stringer had recorded an album of gospel music with his quartet where he's on the cover of it. I have the album with the bass, and that strap is the same strap that's on the album. So it was full confirmation wow. yeah. of the bass. I went on then to get in touch with Denny Lane and invite him down to do a show near here that we set up with the intentions of asking Denny to sign a certificate of authenticity about it. So I take it to the show, and Denny's there, and we're backstage with him, and we got a large blow-up of me and Denny. <laughs> and I said, Denny, here's the bass. He goes, yeah? How do we know it's the same one? I said, here you and I are in 74. You see these two marks on the bass? And he goes, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> and he posed with me. We made the same picture side by side with the base 42 years apart. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. So here's the thing I'd like to, imp I'd like to impress upon you about this story now. Mm -hmm. That Billy, the guy who was playing in the band with me in 1974, that was with me when I gave the base to Paul, is the guy who 42 years later <laughs> walks in the pawn shop and discovers it. There's a nice, a nice good, symmetry to good that. Good turn. It's just an impossibility. It's wild. What are the odds? What happened after that is I got on the trail of, uh, you know, a drummer named Jeff Britton, who had played mm -hmm. with Paul uh -huh. at the farm. And I was good friends with Jeff at the farm, and I'd been in touch with him. I got his number when he left the U.K. I sent him some photographs I'd made. I used to call him occasionally. I used to call Alan Crowder at the MPL, talk with him. Wow. And um, hmm. and once I called Jeff's house, his mother said, well, they're at the studio. Here's the number. So I called and had Jeff on, and then eventually Jeff goes, oh, Dan, I better go. Paul's hauling for me. <laughs> wow. That's how close I I was uh, aggravating him, you know, at the time. But uh, <laughs> So eventually I lose track of Jeff, and all these years go by. Right. And, you know, uh, Jeff is, leaves wings, and uh, we lose contact, and decades pass and i get to thinking well now that i got this bass back it would be nice to get a comment from jeff if he remembers about the bass but mm -hmm. as most of you know uh that are familiar with jeff is he, he spent all those years and he never really talked about wings right you know yeah. he did he yeah. never did any interviews he didn't write any books he didn't do any tv or yeah he's been very elusive um yeah very similar to like uh, jimmy nickel was with uh you know the beatles mm-hmm I mean, I spent all these years uh, as a private detective, 
And mm-hmm. that's that's still what I do today for 33 years. After all of the uh, sleuthing you did uh, to get to uh, Junior's Farm, it, it it seems to make sense. Yeah, it seems to fit in. You know? <laughs> it fits. <laughs> yeah. I get to looking for Jeff, and it takes me four years to find him. I eventually connect with him in Europe through a guitar player that was playing with him. And I told the guitar player, I knew Jeff in Nashville in 74. Here's a picture of me with him. Could you ask him if he remembers me? And the next day, on Messenger, I see the guitar player's light lit up. And I said, hey, did you ask Jeff about uh, the picture I sent you? And he said, I'm with Jeff right now. Hmm. And he remembers you. Hmm. And here's his email address. So that was August of last year. We started uh, slowly communicating by email. And eventually, I sent him a lot of photographs and questions and you know, you can trigger people's memory sure. by mm-hmm. sending them a picture, talking about something, and then have them think about it for a while. I mean, one of the examples with Denny on the bass is uh, we were talking about the bass backstage one day, Denny and I, and all of a sudden Denny goes, well, Paul wouldn't let me keep it. <laughs> I, said, I said, keep what? He said, the bass. Paul wouldn't let me keep it. I said, what do you mean he wouldn't let you keep it? He said, well, when he decided he wasn't going to keep it, I wanted it. (laughs) But but Paul said, there is only one Rickenbacker going to be in the band, and I play it. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. Now, let's go to about the signing the bass. So while that thing that the bass went through, if I had had Paul sign that bass, I would have never got it back. No. So no. I finally get with Jeff. I'm I'm having regular conversations with Jeff, and uh, we're talking a lot about wings and a lot about the days. And and I tell him, I said, uh, I told someone that I'm talking to Jeff Britton, and they said you can't be. He doesn't talk to anyone. And Jeff laughed, and he said, Well, it's true. He said, But I knew who you are, and that makes the difference. So eventually, yeah. Eventually, I uh, sent an affidavit to Spain. Because Jeff suddenly tells me one day, I remember about your Rickenbacker bass. He said uh, it was up at the garage. Paul was tinkering with it. He was playing it. He didn't want to keep your bass because you were a fan. He didn't want to keep a fan's bass. He said he could have any bass in the world that he wanted instantly. He didn't want to keep your bass, and that became a problem for him. So Paul eventually decided after he played it, tinkered with it for a while, that it would mean more to you if he kept it and played it and then gave it back to you mm-hmm. than if he had just hmm. kept it. And so that's Jeff's recollection yeah. about the bass. Some people will say, well, wait a minute, your bass was right-handed, Paul's left-handed. But see, what you have to understand about Paul is that Paul, most of Paul's instruments are right-handed. Yeah, he flips them. Mm. Many times he does it. If you look in the rock, Rockestra uh, mm-hmm. documentary, where he goes around to all the musicians and he shows them their parts. He goes up to the bass player, who's a right-handed player, and he says, let me see your bass, I'll show you the part. Mm-hmm. And he just flips it over and plays it. I mean, that's that's the talent of Paul McCartney. Yeah, yeah. So eventually, uh, Jeff, uh, I connect him. He t- expresses an interest to come over to the U.S. And uh, I connect him with the criers to do a few shows at uh, Abbey Road on the River. Mm-hmm. 
I'd sent Jeff some videos of my band and shared a lot of information with him. And suddenly Jeff one day says, well, if I come to the U.S., are we going to be able to get together? I said, Jeff, do you think that I'm going to spend four years tracking you down? (laughs) And I'm going to allow you to come to the U.S. without connecting with you. It's not going to happen. And so he says, well, you know what? If you drummer doesn't mind stepping aside we could do a gig or two together which was wow. uh, a little bit of uh checking to see if i was hallucinating <laughs> i stood on the porch with him at junior's farm and now this guy who played on junior's farm is going to be coming to see me and he's going to be sitting on the drums next to me hmm. is is this really going to happen so i started he said well, you know look You've helped me to get all this together. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. If you want me to do a meet and greet, you want me to do interviews, you want me to talk to people, you want me to sign, whatever you want me to do because you've helped me, then I'll help you. So what do you want to do? So I came up with this idea of doing a meet and greet here in my hometown on the 45th anniversary of Junior's Farm. Yeah. And um, I was originally going to have Jeff come out with a PA system, just get on the drums and play through a number of the songs, play through them as they played through the system, play along with them. And then uh, Billy said, well, if we're going to have the PA and the system and everything, then we might as well just play with him. So that's how that evolved. And he's coming here for on uh, June 2nd to Cookville, Tennessee, and he's going to do one show only with us. So all these people who have never had a chance to meet him. Sure. I mean, the the, the amazing thing about Jeff Britton, when he auditioned, if you, you know, I encountered Denny backstage on March 19th, and I said, hey, I've uh, got someone that's asking about you. He goes, yeah, who? I said, well, you used to play with him. He goes, well, who is it? I said, took me four years to find him. He goes, who is it? <laughs> I said, Jeff Britton. He goes, Unbelievable. He said, asking me for remembers auditioning in London among all those drummers. And he got the part because he's a great drummer and a great session man. And it turned out that Jeff auditioned. They had hundreds of calls to MPL to audition for this part. Alan Crowder and Paul picked 52 drummers, including Mitch Mitchell, to audition. And... Jeff won out and got the part out of 52 drummers. Wow. It's a real credit. And, uh, you know, he went on to play with uh, Man for Man's Earth Band, mm-hmm. David Byron from Uriah Heat, Wild Angels, uh, The Pirates, a lot of bands. And uh, mm-hmm. to fathom now that he's going to show up here on the 45th anniversary of Junior's Farm, and we're going we're gonna to do some old songs, it's, and he's going to meet everyone that wants to come. It's just... Uh, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I mean, I've had people call me saying their friends can't believe that this can't be true because Jeff doesn't show up anywhere and, and do any of this. Right. And so I'm, I'm honored. What I want to tell all our listeners is you can get more information on our Facebook page yesterday and today, or you can go to eventbrite.com and look up the uh, 45th anniversary of Junior's Farm. The event is on Sunday, June 2nd. It's from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. As Dan said, Jeff Britton's going to play. Dan's going to play. <laughs> and uh, it should be a great time. 
Yeah. Now I'm going to bring the Rickenbacker bass out in the Rickenbacker that I gave Paul. I'm going to play it in a public situation for the first time in 45 years. Awesome. I, last time I played it in public was before I brought it to the farm in 1974. Wow. This is going to be an awesome event, and I encourage all our listeners to go. What I also like to say is I may even go. So <laughs> it's a little far for me, but I'd like to see all our listeners out there. Dan, it's been a real pleasure having you with us and sharing these experiences with us. I think they're fascinating. I can listen to them for hours. And one of these days, I'm going to make it over to meet with you. And uh, I want to see the base. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dan, for coming on. Seriously, this is a roller coaster of a story um, and, and amazing uh, so thank That's you so great. much for, for sharing it with us. Dan, thank you so much. That was really, really cool. Thank you for having me. I mean, I look at it as I got to live every fan's dream. Absolutely. And yeah. a, a, a lot of people come here and they want to uh, talk to me and they want to see the base. And, and I'm, I Absolutely. love to talk sure. about it and share the experience with them because uh, a lot of magic happened for me. I dreamed that I would meet Paul. It happened. And then I've, you know, I've been able to keep in touch with Denny through the years, and now Jeff through the years, and to have Jeff coming back here to uh, play in my band, it's just, it's just another dream. I will say this: oh, I don't know that it's going to happen, but we did. Paul is three hours from us hmm. the day before in Lexington, Oof. Kentucky. We have been in touch with MPL. I've talked to him in London, and I've emailed him all the details. I don't know if Paul's going to show up, but he is known for doing it. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I provided that we have a uh, field for a helicopter available. We have an airport for a business jet. It's 45 minutes by air or it's three hours by uh, car, and he's off that day. So <laughs> if he wants to come and bring the band, that's great. If he wants to show up, walk through the door by himself, either way, Paul, if you're out there, we'd be honored to have you. Absolutely. That sounds fantastic. That would be the most amazing thing. If not, either way, still amazing to see jeff Britton alone would be would be something else sure so anybody who can make it out there that'd be great show some love and um yeah thanks so much dan we really appreciate it thank you thank you for having me okay this next tune's called junior's farm
Everybody out there enjoyed this special bonus interview episode. We wanted to thank Dan Ely again for joining us. So many great stories, Dan. Thank you so much. We'd love to have you back on again, Dan, and hear more great stories. And we wish you the best of luck next week for your concert with Jeff Britton. Again, everyone out there, check out our Facebook page and we'll give you all the details about how to get there. That's on June 2nd. We will be back in two weeks with the finale of 1972. And then we're going to keep it actually at a every other week release schedule for 1973. And there's a lot of great stuff coming up in that year. So we hope everybody enjoys what we've got coming up. So again, thank you, everybody. Thanks again to Dan Ely. See you back here again in two weeks. And if you're around the Nashville, Tennessee area, check out this wonderful concert Dan's putting on with Jeff Britton, drummer for Wings. And we'll see you next time, folks. Bye. Or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. 
also visit at yesterday pod on twitter and search yesterday and today podcast on facebook see you next time I'm Paul Kaminsky. And I'm James Kaminsky. And we are the co-hosts of the Third Men Podcast. We are a Jack White history podcast where we go over the White Stripes, Third Man Records, the list goes on. And occasionally, we do a funny voice or two. So you're going to probably want to get used to that. Or turn it off. Whatever your preference. Or whatever turns you on. (laughs) Hey now, you're an all-star, because occasionally... We'll do an all-star We did do an entire Smash Mouth episode once. That is true. (laughs) We are every other week on Wednesdays, and we are available on iTunes and really wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so why don't you come on and find yourself a little home here with us? We promise we'll be weird roommates. If I want to do the dishes without my pants on, that's my deal. That was weird. See? We weren't (laughs) even lying.